So about a week ago, uh, Kate and I had an appointment with our financial advisor, Greg. And, you know, we have four small young, four small kids. So in order to do something like this, we need to kick them out of the house because they're obnoxious and loud. So we gave them like fistfuls of candy or something and sent them outside uh, for an hour so we could sit down and have this meeting with Greg in Kate's new office. Now, Greg is in BC because we met him out there when we, we lived out there at our church. So in order to do this, we have to meet on Zoom. Covert or not, we meet Greg on Zoom. And so we sit down in Kate's new office and, and Greg's on the screen and and I came in late and, and him and Kate were talking a bit and kind of like they reminisce and they talk about because Kate knows all of his kids. I honestly, I couldn't name one of them, but Kate knows them. And then like Greg's wife works there and she, she came on the screen and was like, oh, hi, Kate. And then, you know, they had like their girly giddy thing with high pitched voices and stuff. And Greg and I just smile and nod. And uh, anyway, so, that, so then we get into it and Greg starts talking about these things and, and stocks and investment things and how, you know, despite COVID, they were still able to make money and things didn't crash like people thought. And, and the whole time I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, Greg, I have no idea what you're saying to me. And I get these statements in the mail and I have no idea what they're saying. I just want a one line statement that just says you made money or you lost money. That's all I need. And maybe, maybe the figure would be nice, you know, just that you made this much or you lost this much. That's all I need. I don't need all this like pie charts, graphs, things that I don't understand what's happening. And so essentially for me, what it comes down to is Greg, Greg always has these ideas and he's like, I think we should do this, or I think we should move things like this. And, and I just think like, Greg, I have no idea, but I trust you. So whatever you would do with your money is what I want you to do with my money. If you remember from last week, this series leading up to Easter transitions us from uh, our previous series uh, on faith into our next series after Easter on prayer. Last Sunday, I painted the picture that uh, faith and prayer are like two wings of a hinge um, and that the cross is the linchpin that uh, holds the hinge together. We learned that the cross is what gives foundation to our faith and the cross is also what gives power to our prayers. Without the cross, without Jesus' death and resurrection, our faith has no foundation and our prayers never get lift off. There's no oomph or power to them. So our faith needs the cross for a solid foundation and our prayer life needs the cross for resurrection power. We also said that the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 53 paint Jesus as ordinary guy Jesus, as next door Jesus. Now this morning we're going to move on to the next three verses where Jesus is painted not as ordinary guy Jesus, but instead he's painted as full guy Jesus, as the one who took our place. Now I know that most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with the central teaching of the Christian faith that Jesus died for our sins, that he died in our place on the cross, or as 1 Peter 3 verse 18 words it, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. So we know this, we know the what, as it were, but what about the how? What are the spiritual mechanics of what went on under the hood on the cross? How does the death of a man 2,000 years ago have an impact on my life now and the future of the entire world? How does it work? Now, for some, now, for some people, they know that Jesus died for them and they've placed their trust in him 
And that's enough for them. They don't necessarily know the, the what of what happened um, or the how. It's like those school kids who know the answer, but they can't show their workings. Some of us can't show our workings. We just know that Jesus, he died for us. There's this um, blind man in John chapter 9. He's uh, healed by Jesus uh, on a Sabbath. And so, you know, the Pharisees are out for Jesus' blood because Jesus shouldn't have healed him on the Sabbath. And so, you know, the Pharisees find this, this formerly blind man and they corner him and they try to coerce him into testifying against Jesus that Jesus is a sinner because he healed this man on the Sabbath. And this, and this man's response in verse 25 of John chapter 9 is this. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Maybe you're like this man. You don't know all the theology and the details, but one thing you know, you were hopeless, you were in sin, you were stuck, you were lonely, you were helpless, fill in the blank, but now you're free, you're released, you're loved, you're accepted. Once you were blind, now you see, and that's enough for you. And if this is you, then let me say that it's infinitely more important that you know that you can see, even if you don't know how than it is to know the theories of healing the blind while still being blind, right? Experience trumps theory every time. Maybe Jesus for you is like Nathan's financial advisor, someone in whom you have implicit trust that he has done and he will keep on doing what is in your best interest. And maybe that's enough for you. And so the most important thing above everything else is to say, one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. Friends, let me ask you this. Have you got the conviction that you are saved, that you are Christ's, that you are part of his kingdom, his family, that your sin has been dealt with, that you are part of God's new creation here on earth? Do you know this? Do you know that you can see? If not, come to Jesus and confess your spiritual blindness and plead for him to hear you. Because nothing else matters except this. This is the thing of first importance. This is the one thing that you need to know that you can see. But then after knowing that one thing that I was blind and now I see, after knowing that one thing, it's not necessarily a bad idea to know a little more, right? It's enough to know that Jesus died for you. But it's way more amazing to know what was going on behind the scenes that led to your salvation, the mechanics, as it were, what was going on under the hood. It's like music. Like many people, I know when I like a song. It just resonates with me. But I also know that my understanding of theory and my experience of playing music can tell me why I like a song, because I know a bit about the mechanics of music. My knowledge leads to a greater appreciation of music. And the same is true of the cross. And so in verse 4 to 6 of Isaiah 53, we get a glimpse of the spiritual mechanics of the theory of what went on when Jesus died on the cross. And this, these um, theories, these mechanics are collectively known as the theories of atonement. And so we start in verse 4. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. It says this, sorry, I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to find it now. Isaiah 53, verse 4. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. In essence, this verse talks about those uh, who look at Jesus on the cross and they mentally separate the suffering that he went through from the sin that they did yesterday or this morning. There's a mental break there. And if we're not careful, we can treat the cross as a separate historical event that has no bearing or connection on our sin or our sanctification. But Isaiah puts that idea to rest by saying that Jesus took up our pain. He bore our suffering, that what was rightfully ours, he took on himself. And so understanding these theories of atonement, these spiritual mechanics of the cross, um, starts with placing ourselves at the scene and looking up at the cross, as it were, with our eyes of faith and understanding that what happened happened because of us, that Jesus took our place. So say this with me, Jesus took my place. One, two, three, Jesus took my place. One more time, Jesus took my place. Verse 5 then continues this, this theme. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Thank you, Jesus. This verse is all about him and us. It's like a tennis match. He, our, he, our, us. Him, his, we. You see it? Now, today, to unpack verse 5, we might use the analogy of a heart transplant. Your, your heart is infected with a sickness that is fatal, but then someone comes along and offers his healthy, perfect heart for your, um, your disease-ridden heart, which sounds like an amazing plan. The only thing is that for the heart transplant to take place, uh, he has to die first so that his healthy organs can be harvested and placed into your body. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. Our spiritual well-being, our spiritual life, our spiritual health is both directly and inversely proportionate to Jesus' well-being, life, and health. In other words, he died so that you might live. Which brings us back to the how. Why did Jesus have to die? How did he die? What happened under the hood, as it were? How did it happen? Let's take uh, a couple of minutes now to look at the, uh, the theories that attempt to explain exactly what took place on the cross. Now, the broad term that covers all these theories is called atonement, uh, which is a made-up word from uh, the words at and the words one. So it's at one month. Uh, so the center of these uh, theories of atonement is this idea of Jesus bringing together what was previously in a state of conflict or war, what was previously previously separate. So something happened at the cross that brought together God and humans in a way that was previously impossible. Without the atonement, without the at one month, a relationship uh, between you and God would not even be on the table. Now, when we look at the 
Hebrew word for atonement, we've looked at the, at the English root, but when we look at the Hebrew root of the word atonement, the meaning becomes even more rich because the idea in Hebrew of atonement is that of a covering, like a blanket or the covering of the mercy seat in the old sacrificial system. So when Christ atoned for our sins, he invited us under the security blanket of the covering of his righteousness that only he could provide, and by faith we can enter in. So in English, atonement means at one month to be brought together, and in Hebrew, the word for atonement means like a covering. So when we combine the English and the Hebrew words together, we have this idea of a covering that results in a restored relationship. And this is what happened on the cross. But still haven't answered the question, how? How did it happen? What are the mechanics? What's happening under the hood? How did what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago lead to a covering of our sin um, and the possibility of being at one with God? Why was Jesus, as verse 5 says, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins? Why was the punishment that brought us peace on him? And why are we healed by his wounds? And here's where the theories of atonement come in. Remember, all I'm doing this morning is trying to give you a brief introduction. If you want to find out more, then you need to look into it yourself. And I would recommend uh, the book called The Day the Revolution Began by N.T. Wright. Or there's another book called A Church Called Atonement by Scott McKnight. And I also found very helpful in my study for this, um, the Bible Project video called Sacrifice and Atonement, which traces this theology of, of atonement all through the Bible. And there's also this really helpful summary article on the internet by this guy called Stephen Morrison. So all of these um, uh, have helped me write this morning's sermon. And you can find the links to this in the YouTube video description. Okay, enough Let's move on to the theories. Theory number one is the moral influence theory. Okay? Um, the first theory that we will look at with what happened with Jesus on the cross is called the moral influence theory. Meaning, as we see um, the death of Jesus, we are influenced to live like he did and to lay down our lives for the good of others as he did. This is the moral influence theory. We see Jesus, we see his example, and we want to be like him. And the verse that supports the moral influence theory is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, that says this, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So in the moral influence theory, Jesus is our example. The second theory that we'll look at is the ransom theory. Now, Stephen Morrison, in his article, sums it up like this. He says, this theory essentially teaches that, that Jesus Christ died as a ransom sacrifice, paid either to Satan or to God the Father. Jesus' death then acts as a payment to satisfy the debt on the souls of the human race, the same debt that we inherited from Adam's original sin. Now, the ransom theory uses similar language to the word redemption, which is a marketplace term that was used in the Bible, uh, that Jesus paid for our freedom, that 
he bought us from the marketplace of sin. And that's actually language which I use fairly regularly. So 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says this, for, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So we see the ransom theory there in the Bible. And in this theory, Jesus is our ransom. Theory three, the third theory of atonement is called Christus Victor, which means Christ the victor or Christ the winner. And the idea here is not that someone has to be paid off, but that an evil power structure needs, needs to be demolished from the inside out. So in Christus Victor, Jesus kind of snuck himself into the kingdom of Satan as the God-man, and he lived a perfect life as the God-man, and then he broke out of the grave as the God-man in the resurrection. And so it's the, it's the idea of a jailbreak or a revolution. And in this victory, Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan and hell for us. And a verse that backs up this Christus Victor theory is Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 that says this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So in Christus Victor, Jesus is our our hero. So we've had Jesus as our example, we've had Jesus as our ransom, and now we have Jesus as our hero. And the fourth and last theory that we'll look at this morning is the penal substitution theory. Now the word penal means, uh, means penalty. It means I do something wrong and a penalty has to be paid. And then the word substitution in the title, penal substitution, means that I don't pay the penalty myself. Someone else pays it for me. Someone else is the substitute who... who who pays the penalty? Now, this theory started in the 16th century during the Reformation with Luther and with Calvin and with Zwingli, but it actually riffs off an earlier theory called the satisfaction theory from this guy called Anselm. But in a nutshell, what the penal substitution theory says is that Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath or righteous anger against sin, so he was punished in our place. Like, like in that hymn, right? That on the cross as Jesus died, uh, the wrath of God was satisfied. So what scriptures are used to support the idea of penal substitution? Well, Isaiah 53 for one, uh, this, this, uh, this chapter we're going through at the moment, uh, especially verse six, where it says um, that uh, we all like sheep have, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That sounds very much like the idea of penal substitution. So in this theory, we are guilty and Jesus is our substitute. Now, there are more theories of, of, uh, of the atonement. We have the governmental theory and the scapegoat theory amongst them, but it would take more time than I have this morning to, um, you know, to tease apart all the different meanings uh, with them. But we've looked at the... Um, at the, at, the, at, at the moral influence theory, we've looked at the ransom theory, we've looked at Christus Victor, and we've looked at penal substitution. But what we know is that, and what all of these are saying, is that something happened on the cross 
that made things right for those who trust in Jesus and has started to usher in this uh, era of new creation that will ultimately culminate uh, in the coming of the, of the new heavens and the new earth at the end of time. And so this morning, what we've looked at is, um, you know, the different ways that we can understand what took place on the cross, these so-called theories of atonement. So on the cross was Jesus our example, as in the moral influence theory. Was he our payment, our ransom, as in the ransom theory? Was he our hero and our rescuer, as in the Christus Victor theory? Was he our substitute, as in the penal substitution theory? Or might he have been all of these, our example, our ransom, our victor? And our substitute. The author Scott McKnight talks about using these uh, theories like a set of golf clubs. That they're all part of our equipment, our arsenal. And we need to learn how to use the right one at the right time. And so we use, you know, the driver for the long shots. You know, and we use the chipper or the wedge, is it called, for, you know, the sand or the rough. Uh, and then we... Use the putter for those last few inches. We don't use the driver or, or on the green or we don't use the putter in the rough. And so in our bag of resources, we have all these understandings of what Jesus did on the cross. So how would you pray to Jesus as your example? What would this prayer look like? How would it sound? What words would you use if you were praying to Jesus as your example? Or what would your prayers to Jesus as your ransom look like? Would it, would it have a different feel or heft to it? How would you pray to Jesus as your victor, as the one who broke into prison and broke out again, bringing you with him? What would that prayer look like? And in what circumstances would you pray to Jesus as your victor? How would you pray to Jesus as your substitute, that he took your place, that he stood in the gap? When would you pray this prayer? How would that prayer sound? What language would you use? At the end of his article on the different theories of atonement, Stephen Morrison says this, and I think he's spot on. He says this, thankfully at the end of the day, we're not saved by theories. We're saved by Jesus. How that happens may be fun to discuss and theorize about, but only in sight of the fact that it's the who that matters far more. Right? Isn't that true? However, Thomas Oden says this. He says, admittedly, it's more important to the believer to know that he or she is saved by the cross than precisely how. Yet the recipient of saving grace is at some point compelled to ask how and why to whatever degree it is possible. So that's where I want to leave us this morning with the confidence that whatever the Trinity, whatever the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit achieved on the cross has changed everything forever for all who trust in Christ. It's enough to know that Jesus died and now we can have peace with God. It's enough to know that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought us peace was on him and that by his wounds we are healed. It's enough to know that we all like sheep 
have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's enough to know the what that Jesus died. It's enough to know the who, that it was a plan hatched by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's, an, it's enough to know the when that it happened 2,000 years ago. It's enough to know the where that it happened on a hill in Palestine. It's enough to know the why that, that he did this because he loved us and because it was the only way to reconcile us to a holy God. It's so it's enough to know the what and the who and the when and the where. But it's also good to know the how. Because my friends, the how is where the gold is. The how is, the, is an invitation to the explorer and the curious and the unsatisfied and the worshipper to know what happened when Jesus died and rose again. Friends, to use a well-known picture to all of us who drive, we have two options in front of us. It can be enough to know uh, that the engine light of our sin is off, that the engine warning light has been turned off because Jesus, the mechanic, fixed it. And we can tell our friends that we have a good mechanic because he turned off the engine warning light. Or we can start to look into what went on under the hood that led to the engine warning light being turned off. We can either be satisfied with having the right answer, and that's enough for many, or you can ask the Bible, you can say, show me your workings. And as we trace these, the, the workings of these theories through Scripture, the result will undoubtedly be great love, and more profound worship, and, and a much more, um, much more deep appreciation for our great God. Understanding the cross will lead to an unshakable foundation for our faith. And it will lead to unlimited power in our prayers as we peel back the layers of what Jesus did on the cross when he lived and died and rose again. And we can say along with Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 31. He who did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Let's pray. Oh Jesus you are. You are our substitute. You are our example. You are our ransom. You are our victor. And Lord, I thank you for what happened on the cross. And I thank you, Lord, that we have these theories that try to help us to get to grips with what happened on the cross. And I thank you as well, Lord God, that, that as much as these theories can help, they only bring us up to the brink of the mystery. And after that, we have to stand on the edge and look out at you and say, Lord, I don't understand. I still don't understand. And that's okay. Because the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Lord, so 
Would you create in us a heart of an explorer? Would we learn how to pray to you as our example, as our substitute, as our, as our victor, as our winner? Lord, would we learn how to see you through these lenses, which are all uh, ways of looking at this one truth that Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. And Lord, may that transform how we live. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the ordinary guy, Jesus, of uh, Isaiah 53, 1 to 3, and that you are the full guy, Jesus, of Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you did for us, and that even now you are interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.